Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 112 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday, February 26th. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek, and Bobby, I'm here to report that we have a border wall emergency. <laughs> okay. Uh, In our house. At your house? Yes. Did you get a notice that they are going to use eminent domain to build a wall in your I, backyard? I did not. Since Seems we, a little remote from the border, to be honest. We're a little far from the border for that kind of thing to, to work. But um, Karen and I came home uh, yesterday to find that the um, our, our lovely neighbors behind us, um, with whom we share a wall in our backyard, a fence, you might say. Um, their <laughs> Is it dog, a barrier? More of a barrier? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a wood fence. I okay. could say it's a fence. <laughs> um, their dog had, had burrowed his way all the way under the fence oh. and was in our backyard. Oh, I see. That's, it, see, it's, it just shows you, you got to really, you got to dig deep. They got to go down into the ground. Or, or maybe it shows you that, that, that fences are not necessarily effective. They're not. <laughs> even a dog but got so, to so, so I, I turned to Karen and I said, I'm here by declaring a national emergency. Um, and we will, you know, we will build, we will fix this wall, we will build this wall, we will keep that little dog on his side of the fence. <laughs> so, well, let me ask: Are you going to try to redirect some military construction yeah. funds? Or are you hoping to make the other side of the wall pay for it? Oh no, it? Mexico is going to pay. <laughs> oh, I see. How so, this is. so I, I, I think there's, I, I think, I think there's no question that Mexico is going to pay for our wall, or at least our, our or, neighbors or new, to the br- south, or a new, new brick, our new brick. Okay. Um, well, I'm sorry to hear your, uh, you know. Good luck with your your wall issues. <laughs> but so, so I, just, I mean, you know, this is day eleven of the national emergency. The real, the, the so I say the the quote real unquote national emergency. So I feel like you know I should put this in perspective. Well, you know, Grant, you know, bit by bit to digress on that before we get into the run of the show, I will just note since it's something we talked about in great depth in our prior show. If you're wondering if if you're coming to our show for the first time, looking for a little bit of national emergency act discussion, go check out episode one eleven. We went very deep into the legal weeds on that. All I will add right now is that we're bit by bit beginning to see some reporting that's trying to get uh, its arms around the question of which projects that were going to be funded, and this is not just military construction funds that are being redirected, but also funds that otherwise were going to be some of the the drug, uh, the asset forfeiture funds are being redirected, the, the narcotics programs funds being redirected. We're slowly beginning to get glimpses of the fact that, in fact, somebody's ox is getting gored for every one of those dollars being redirected towards the wall project. And my sense is that the, I don't know if the vote has happened yet, but that sometime today the House is actually going to vote. I think, you know, we can safely assume positively oh, on, yeah. Yeah, on no. a termination resolution. The, I think the only the only interesting question about the House vote is we'll have enough votes to right. already well, be within the ballpark shouting of, distance. Right. Well, they get in the ballpark of like, right. two, I mean, so so you need 290, you need 290, right, to override a veto. Um, and I think the question is whether you would get to like 265 or 270 on this vote to, yeah, you know, to make it a real issue. Make it a real issue. Yeah, so probably not, I'm guessing. And yeah. I don't think even the House can get there in the end. Um, the Senate, I think, is very far from getting to... No, but I, I actually think so. I think this is more likely. I th- no, I think it'll pass the Senate, though. I mean, I think, oh, I, I think, think it, no, I, th- I think it will pass. I think you had at least two Republicans already yep. come out saying yep. they would support this. Yep. I think it's a real good chance of passing the Senate. It it has the political virtue if you can put those words together. I'm not sure you can, but it has the <laughs> political air quotes virtue of being something you can do that won't actually change the circumstances. So you can kind of signal to the White House, like, hey, you know, um, this is sort of my 
taking a stand for for executive uh, opposition to executive overreach with Nitro's yep. future. But I, yep. Mr. President, I'm not really going against you here. Well, I mean, it's all right. It seems to me that like the Republican caucus in the Senate could be quite comfortable with four or five or even six or seven. Right. Um, Leadership pressure won't emerge until it gets closer to like 15. Yeah, right. Yeah. So um, I'll just say for those who, who want to watch um, how good my poker face is, um, <laughs> I spent 45 minutes this morning on C-SPAN's Washington Journal Ooh, um, talking good. about the emergency field uh, caller questions and man, the, the caller questions, Bobby, they're interesting. I bet you know someday we should have that on this show. But I think the pool, <laughs> the pool that C-SPAN draws from is a little, little wider than ours. I, I, I like to hope that our listeners um, will. Let me put it this way: um, I like to hope that our listeners will not, upon discovering that even though I live in Austin, Texas, I'm from New York, say that I'm therefore completely unqualified to speak to the border issues um, <laughs> because I have a California attitude. Right? I mean, that's just that's, that's a very uh, tricoastal. I said tricoastal. Yeah. Golf. Golf. Yeah. Golf. Absolutely. Golf. Yeah, yeah. Golf coast. Third, there you co- go. third coast, y'all. Third All coast. Right. So uh, we actually have a, a pretty full program of stuff to talk about today. None of which is the national emergency at the border. Woo-hoo. Um, All right. What do we got so, first? Uh, we're going to talk about the um, interesting uh, dis- dispute over the citizenship of Hoda Muthana, uh, the so-called ISIS bride. We're going to segue from that, Bobby, into a a proposal from two congressmen, including your and my congressman, Chip Roy, here from the, the Texas 21st, um, about adding a bunch of drug groups to the State Department's foreign terrorist organizations list. Yeah, Chip Roy, UT law grad. Hook him. Hook him. I think. Yeah, hook them. Well, Absolutely. Eh. well yeah, it, you get at least one full hook them here. Okay, you got uh, uh, one hook them. All right, uh, there you go. Agree, one hook them. Agree em. to disagree. Uh, <laughs> um, and then we actually have a series of interesting D.C. Circuit developments. Uh, we have a two-judge concurrence in the denial of initial hearing on Bonk um, in a Guantanamo case last Friday by Judges Tatel and Pillard that I think is actually a really telling um Summary of things we've talked about on this podcast before about the sort of awkward uncertainty with regard to constitutional provisions applying at Guantanamo. Possibly a foreshadowing of things. As I will suggest. Yep. Okay. Um, we also have this morning um, a very important ruling from the D.C. Circuit unanimously rejecting Stephen Miller's challenge to the constitutionality of Special Counsel Mueller's appointment and investigation. We had talked, Bobby, way back when about how like exasperated I was. I know people are shocked I was exasperated. Um, <laughs> what was the hashtag? Somebody had earlier today. Steve's mad at the internet, uh, <laughs> or the internet. St- the internet makes Steve angry. You started that. Um, <laughs> that was so so, well so anyway, the the we we had we had savaged and and pilloried the 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 weakness of these arguments. But the DC Circuit has now given our savagery the uh, imprimatur of three appellate judges. Oh, uh, there you go. I'll take um, it. Short short version. No, this argument is crazy. Mueller's <laughs> and, uh, you know appointment and investigation are fine. Um, and then we also have uh, I think we might just re- really briefly refer to this interesting DC Circuit political question decision Mm -hmm. um, in the Al-Tamimi case about whether you can challenge various features of the um, Israeli-Palestinian, shall we say, situation in a U.S. court. And then we've got, uh, turning back to Texas, we'll go to Houston, where uh, we have an opinion in National Coalition for Men versus Selective Service System. This is the uh, women aren't subject to selective service registration case. For the moment. For the moment. Well, we have a a judge declaring, not not national injunction, a declaratory judgment. 
uh, finding for the uh, the complainants, the plaintiffs, and basically holding that um, the Supreme Court's 1981 decision in Rosker versus Goldberg, which specifically rejected an equal protection yeah. challenge to all male selective service, has been overtaken by events. Yeah, interesting stuff to talk about. Absolutely, no, it's a super interesting question. And then um, I guess there was no, I don't, I didn't see anything in the Supreme Court uh, uh, order list this week that really jumped out as. Coming close to our no, except reach. I, 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 I can't resist. There was yesterday um, this short procuring opinion about why dead judges can't vote. Oh yeah, we start. Let's get um, to that then, and, and we can say something too about the state of podcasting relating to first uh, Mondays. Yep. Yeah. Um, I, I just want to say I, um, I have a real um, uh, nerdy but important Article Three objection to the the quote that everyone took away from that procuring opinion. I actually, I, so I think it's actually quite interesting, and it actually does. I think it close enough to our ballpark to where I will rule that in. Oh, it, it is deemed relevant. <laughs> the, part of the, the associate dean has ruled it in. Um, uh, and, oh, and, wait, real quick shout out, uh, by the way, to Andy Priest. Andy, I don't know if you're listening, but you're awesome. Andy, uh, just out of nowhere, clear blue sky, sent some uh, coupons for Voodoo Donuts, which is an awesome chain. Many of you will know. None of which made their way to me. No, but they were for my students. They were for the students. They were for Andy, our students. Were they? Where are they? We'll let Andy, Andy let us know. Well, happily, I still have a number of them left over because when you go to, first of all, any one Voodoo Donut can That's feed true, about like for an four army. people. Exactly. So uh, some of those coupons have been used. And so this morning in law of the intelligence community, Voodoo Donuts were had and greatly appreciated. So that was pretty awesome. And, uh, you know, there's nothing better than when someone just decides to do something nice for other people for no reason other than goodness of heart. So good on you, Andy. And you know what, Steve, in that spirit, I will definitely give you some of the coupons, too. Because also, if I keep eating these things, I might die. You might start looking like me. Um, so, and then uh, frivolity, I mean, the frivolity just writes itself this week. Oh, Oscar. Oscars. Um, and also because someone did not, in fact, carry on his pledge to catch up on True Detective. I made, the pledge was I would try my best. We definitely made an effort. And so we're almost there. And again, dear listeners, uh, no spoilers, please. We've got Bobby, a few episodes left to go. Do or do not. There is no try. There is no try. You're right. Well, how about doing? Huh? In progress. Oh. I am in the midst of watching these shows. Okay, fine. Yeah. Um, but in the sense <laughs> there's that just there is no finish. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's coming. I think we're a week out. Uh, okay, so Hoda Muthana. Hoda Muthana. This, this story blew up. It's, it's kind of interesting because we've had a number of British uh, sort of scenarios like this. Mm-hmm. Now we have an American Islamic State, so-called Islamic State bride. Uh, these, are, these are people who did not necessarily go over there to join to fight but went to become a, a so-called citizen of this so-called state, but very much knowingly and intentionally went over there to join it and be part of the larger governance project that was the Islamic State. Uh, and in the nature of that state, the the role that was allotted to women there was basically to be enslaved into these these bogus marriages. Um, she went through three of these in short order. Uh, she was among the uh, people escaping from the dwindling bit of ISIS-controlled territory in Syria, ends up uh, getting out, being identified, and then the Secretary of State had something to say about that. Yeah, what there happens? Was, there was you? a very loud pronouncement by the Secretary of State um, that um, asserting that Hoda Muthana is not a citizen and will not be allowed to travel to the United States. So um, backed up uh, about a couple hours later by a tweet from President Trump. 
Because right. nothing, nothing adds nuance to a situation <laughs> like a tweet from President Trump. So true. Um, let's do this. Let's talk first before we get to the the question about the fact pattern here. Let's just talk about what's you know who's a citizen according yep. to the Constitution and yep. what's this business about children of diplomats. Yeah. Okay. So so short course in citizenship under the citizenship clause of the Fourteenth Amendment, which was enacted specifically to overrule the Supreme Court's decision in Dred Scott. Um, the short version, and I'm going to add the complications, but the short version is anyone born on U.S. soil is a U.S. citizen by birthright. Um, does not have to do anything, is automatically a birthright citizen. There are a couple of complications. Um, the first is that does not apply to, quote, Indians not taxed, unquote, which the Supreme Court interpreted, I think, in Elk versus Wilkins um, in 1884 to basically say, if you've chosen to live on a Native American reservation apart from society, um, then you're not you're not really on U.S. soil for purposes of birthright citizenship. Um, the second exception, which the Supreme Court talks about in, I think, Wong Kim Ark, right, in 1896, um, is if you are the children, if you're children of diplomats. Right. And this is based on the idea that the actual text says, not just that you're born here, but- Subject uh, to the subject, jurisdiction thereof. Subject to the jurisdiction. The idea is diplomats are here sort of in a bubble of- They're immune. Yeah, they're immune from from our process. They're not governed by our laws And that with that way. immunity, right, with immunity comes- Freedom from New York City parking regulations. Exactly, and so if you're gonna be free from the parking tickets, you also can't be entitled to citizenship. Yeah, you can't have it both ways. Right. So, um, but that's important because it suggests that the sort of time frame, which we're going to get to in Ruthana's case, for when the switch turns off and on for birthright citizenship is tied to immunity. Exactly. Um, which we'll get back to. And okay. then yeah. uh, and then there is this sort of third, well, the third category, just awkwardly, um, is uh, residents of unincorporated overseas territories, mm. um, right? So the D.C. Circuit in the Tuawa case a couple of years ago held that American Samoans are not constitutionally held to birthright citizenship. I think that is horribly wrong, um, but it's out there. You are, then, you are always to be counted on for speaking for the territories because I know you've been to a number of these places. But not American Samoa. I am, I am, I'm at 48 states and five territories. I really, I've got, I, you know, I think I'll get to the Dakotas before I get to American Maybe we Samoa. can add a few more and just to complicate it for you. <laughs> Don't give the president any ideas. Anyway, um, and then, of course, Bobby, there is the broader conversation about whether undocumented immigrants um, right, born on U.S. soil. Right. right? The, the, I think I, I, I have said before, I will say again, I don't think there's any question uh, as a matter of both original understanding text and Supreme Court doctrine, C. Wong, Kim Ark, and Plyler versus Doe, that whether, you're, whether your parents are in status or not, if you don't fall into one of those two other categories, that is to say, child of diplomat or Native American living on a reservation, you're covered. Um, I realize that's controversial, but that's just, you know. So, so in this case, uh, Pompeo's uh, determination, if we can call it that, surely rested on the idea that uh, that Hodomathana's father had been a diplomat or was still cloaked with that status sufficiently from the t- at the time she was born. Mm-hmm. But what's complicated is uh, apparently it seems it seems undisputed from what reporters are saying that he had. Uh, ceased to be a diplomat about a month before she was born. So the argument must either be that someone didn't know those facts, A, B, didn't care and thought they could make an issue of it, or C, that there's an argument that if, if we can call it the taint of being a diplomat, the diplo taint, kind of stays with you until you until your reason for being in the country has changed with sufficient formality to so, be something else. So I think it's the last one, but I think it's also worth saying we have, I mean, 
whatever the there's a process i mean the the 22 cfr part 50 section 50.2 creates a very specific process to follow when someone who's outside the united states claims to be a citizen um and there's no indication in this case that the secretary of state's declaration was at the end of this process so you know whatever the answer is it seems clear that there's a process to which muthan is entitled so we might begin by saying and it may seem like a cop out but maybe the answer to this is look she has she has a uh, administrative procedures act enforceable right to a process on this issue I I, mean, I would say a due process, yeah. claim, but you know, starting with the yeah, yeah. starting with the statute, and then behind that, even if it's not an APA process right. claim, um, she surely has a procedural due process argument, and I think her case for that, you know, would take a lot of strength. If there's not an on-point precedent, I would look for an analogy to say the D.C. Circuit ruling in PMOI, yep. the People's Mujahideen Organization of uh, Iran. Iran. Yep. Uh, PMOI was a case where you got a group, and this will come up again later. <laughs> it's designated <laughs> as a foreign terrorist organization. It's a foreign organization, but that group actually had it had sufficient assets or presence. I think they had a bank account in yep. D.C. Yep. and they had lawyers that came in representing. So they were entitled to challenge on due process and grounds. They, they at least they had a protectable interest. They were within the scope of the due process clause. Also foreshadowing for later. I actually think it's a much easier case than PMOI because there are two. Critical facts in Muthana's case that I think have not gotten enough attention. The first is she applied for a passport twice previously. Um, and at least on one of those occasions, apparently the State Department pressed her to provide evidence surrounding her father's diplomatic status at the time of her birth. Now, I'm not saying the government can't decide that they made an error when they granted the prior passport, but that had to have created expectations from which due process ought to follow, right? Yeah. That, that even if the U.S. made a mistake, she, you know, she was living in the United States. She was given a passport twice. I can't see the argument that she's not covered by the due process clause. Are we, are we creating the idea or recognizing or unearthing the idea yeah. of a due process estoppel? Not a stopple, but just that, like, from a contacts perspective, right, that the right. government can't turn around now and say she didn't have contacts. Um, second, so I, I think actually the rhetoric aside— oh, Just Bobby, to be clear, like, I think it's obvious she's yeah, got yeah, enough contacts because she yeah. lived her whole life here in, uh, well, until—until, until, and until this is where it starts getting Yeah. So she—let's— yeah, sorry, well, you want to say something? Uh, can, we, can we bracket what she did after birth? Yeah, yeah sure. So, we'll so there's the separate question of whether her citizenship could be revoked. Right, we'll talk about right? that. But where we are, the, the, this, is, this is what's driving us about the public conversation. It's like, well, look what she did in Syria. That goes to revocation of citizenship. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't go to whether she was a citizen when she was born. Right, that goes back in time to 1949, I think. Exactly. Right? So, in, in events maybe that happened later with prior passports. She got two of them, yeah. two passports yeah. previously issued. Including at least one that followed investigation. So I actually think what the dispute all boils down to, Bobby, is Article 30. Of the 1961 Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations, which I know you've committed to memory. Oh, I have it right here. Um, and Article 39 recognizes, I think, entirely obviously, something called residual immunity. Um, that there is a, a, a quote reasonable period of time unquote after which your formal diplomatic posting has ended when you are still covered by the shield of diplomatic immunity so that the government can't just like stop you on the way to the airport right while you're right. while you're flying home from your ambassadorial posting so i that i completely agree with and and so therefore if he was flying home and and his wife gave birth right during that like on the taxi airport, ride to JFK. He would he would have he'd still have what I was calling the diplomatic yep. taint about yep. him to to prevent taint her is such from, a nasty word. Well, right, but it's preventing her from yeah, getting yeah. Uh, the benefits yeah. of birthright citizenship. But here, as I understand it, so four months. It's a it's a number of months. Yep. It was four. It four. Four. Okay, and he had applied in the interim for lawful permanent residence, and status. so had his wife. And so it begins to seem as if they've transitioned, arguably, away from, from diplomats. that. Yeah, and so I actually think it's quite possible that the right answer will be. 
you know, digging into this, maybe she actually didn't qualify, unless there's an estoppel argument, which I'm not... There's I, an, I, no, I don't think they're stopped on the merits. They're not stopped on the merits. They're only stopped from denying that she could make that a procedural process. That she had connections the to the U.S. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I actually think that if she gets the process to which I think you and I agree she's entitled, yep. she may well lose. Yeah. Now, th- then there's a further wrinkle. Does that make her stateless? Yes. But but here's the problem, right? So it's a violation of international law to render someone stateless, right? But the government, I think, would say in response, we're not rendering her stateless she if, she was never, if she was never a citizen in the first place, right? Like that, That's why – so expatriation, right. I think, would raise the international law question in ways that, you know, retroactively deciding that you right. weren't a citizen doesn't. Now, I realize put, that's a technicality. Yeah. No, no, that makes sense. Now, uh, you put your finger on something earlier, which is that a lot of the public debate is not talking about any of the things we just said. Right. They're talking, I think, quite understandably from a non-lawyer's perspective, like, look – I saw a video where uh, – let's see if I can find the quote here. She said uh, – there's a picture on Twitter. It's her and others. They're, they're holding passports. She's holding her U.S. passport. And the line is, quote, bonfire soon. No need for these anymore. And then later on, someone, maybe presumably her but maybe not her, using her Twitter account saying things like, quote, Americans wake up. Men and women all together, you have much to do while you live under our greatest enemy. Enough of your sleeping. Go on drive-bys. Spill all their blood. Rent a big truck and drive all them over. Veterans, patriots, memorial, etc. day. Kill them. So people are seizing on that. Yeah. It's understandable. And they're saying, so clearly she has, in, in every possible sort of layperson sense, uh, left the United States, betrayed the United States to join an enemy in time of war. Doesn't that mean she's expatriated herself? Yep. So let's talk about the law of expatriation, Indeed. which is actually pretty well developed, and we have some pretty clear rules here. Actually, I think clearer than the awkward sort right. of residual immunity problem, where there yeah. are a couple of district court cases, but not much more. Yeah. Um, so expatriation, there. I think there are two things worth saying about expatriation. The first is that Congress has specifically identified seven circumstances in which a U.S. citizen could be deemed to have expatriated themselves. Um, and we can talk about them. They're listed in 8 U.S.C. section 1481A. Um, and the second thing to say is the Supreme Court has over and over again, across multiple decades in different courts, insisted that expatriation is not punitive. Um, but is rather voluntary, right? That is to say, it requires voluntary actions on the part of the putatively former citizen, um, and that it can't just be exacted as punishment for nefarious conduct. Right. So it's it's pretty well established. I think perfectly clearly well established that voluntariness is the touchdown. But that just sort of begs the question: Is in this case, based on the you know the evidence I just read, right? I, you know, the first time I encountered that, I thought, well, that's almost almost a case study, a bonfire coming so soon. This, so this comes but, back to the statute. So, but the question is: Does the statute actually take full advantage? Because the rule could be it's voluntariness, totality of the circumstances. But that's not the rule Congress has adopted. No. So the rule Congress has adopted is: So here are the seven circumstances, right? Obtaining naturalization in a foreign state upon application or upon application filed by a duly authorized agent. Well, I think we can agree not only that ISIS isn't a foreign state, but that the government is in no hurry to recognize ISIS. I mean, right, that whatever we think of ISIS as an entity, it is absolutely antithetical to the U.S. government's interests to make any argument in court that would tend to give it legitimacy as a foreign state. Well, you know, it, but here's the thing. That we, we have situations like that arise, most notably the prize cases yeah. in, in the Civil War, where the government's official position is we do not recognize this would-be claimed state as such, 
But we recognize the individuals as belligerents. But we recognize them as belligerents in that case, and we recognize the situation as having taken on the character of armed conflict. In this case, is it possible that the is it possible to read the statute as saying yes, foreign state, but not requiring that it be one the United States has formally recognized? I don't think so. I mean, I just I, just, I, I understand the I understand the emotional appeal of that argument. I just I don't see a court going there. I don't see the government's going to want to try to push that because just uh, the the Justice Department arguing in a court that ISIS that that going over and supporting ISIS falls within one of the four, I think it's four, yeah, one of the four. Well, all, all seven of them refer in various ways, right, to, to, foreign to states. state. That's the whole, right. that's the takeaway from our whole analysis. Um, well, or at least six of them do. One yeah. doesn't, and I yeah. want to talk about that yeah. one. But so, um, right, that the treason I, one, yeah. I just don't think, no, no, because um, no? treason requires an enemy. No, the sixth one. Yeah, but the enemy doesn't have to be a state. Well, that's true. Okay, yeah. so anyway, yeah. all this is to say, I don't think it's going to be, you know, the four, I don't think it's going to be the foreign state provisions. No, no, I know. But just to play with the idea a little more. So it, it would also, so I kind of set up the argument going one way. There are a lot of places, but most notably the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, where the idea of You foreign, always bring it back to FISA. I try to. Uh, foreign, the, the idea of the state having to be a real recognized sovereign. Yeah. Um, we, we, we have ample evidence that Congress, when it wants to reach beyond that to to borrow from the definition of foreign power in FISA, does, to, to talk so. about factions, yep. to talk about uh, terrorist organizations, to talk about other non-state but nonetheless foreign organized actors. It does know how to do that. And that, I think, does provide a, you know, some ammunition further supporting the argument that, for better or worse, the ex, uh, the ex, uh, expatriation provisions really do seem to refer to sovereigns. Right. Yep. And so once you got that, the, the categories here that you're listing, naturalization, taking an oath of allegiance to a foreign state or political subdivision thereof, entering or serving in the armed I, forces I just of don't a foreign see them, state. I just don't see that happening here. Yeah. So one, two, three, four all the foreign state ones, they four all drop five. out. And we're left, therefore, with six and seven. Okay. So 1481A6 is about voluntarily renouncing. But the problem is you have to voluntarily renounce in the presence of either the Attorney General of the United States or mm. someone he or she has designated to, like a consular officer. I don't think there's any argument that she went formally before a consular officer and renounced her citizenship, even if she did so on the internet. Right. So, I mean, you could try to get creative and say, like, well, it could have been could have been seen by a consular officer. She emailed that, it to she emailed it to the right, State yeah, Department. Yeah, yeah. So that 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 stretches and then seven, the language too and then, far. So you know, the 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 Twitter lawyers out there have all been yelling at me. Well, She's but she committed treason. treason. Um, to which my response is so. Assuming for the sake of argument that you can commit treason by supporting ISIS, and I think there's a good argument that you can. Right. Um, the A7 specifically says once you have been convicted by a court of law for the crime of treason. That's the trick. So I actually think there is, you know, there's an argument to be made that that she committed treason uh, in the form of giving aid and comfort to the enemy in time of war. Um, not that anyone's going to charge that, but they might. Um, but you're right. There has to be a conviction first. You, you don't get to sort of decide, like, how might this work out if there were a prosecution? You actually have to have the prosecution. Yep. So ironically, what they what they might be able to do, Steve, is let her come back, prosecute her, and then in the aftermath of the prosecution, if they succeed on this ground, uh, then seek uh, expatriation. Yeah, although if they convict her of treason, they won't need to because she'll be sitting in a federal prison for the rest of her life. Well, maybe they don't want that. Maybe they want to expatriate her. But where would they but send where, her but to? That, again, right? The, the other problem here is even if you had... So, so I don't think hers is a case that fits into any of the seven statutory categories. And even if it was, you would have the separate problem of the international law violation of rendering her stateless. No, that's, so so the uh, this bottom line is... There does not seem to be a way for expatriation to explain why she's not coming back now. Just the, the law isn't written that way, which is why there's been recurring efforts for I don't know how many years now. Uh, 14. 
Is it been going on Since 14 2005. years? Right. So there's a long-standing thing in this area of law, people proposing uh, to add additional expatriation the Terrorist categories. Expatriation Act. Exactly. So this, this idea has been around for a long time precisely because the current categories don't have that terrorist organization affiliation-based expatriation. But I, I will say, I mean, I, before, before people say, oh, that's a great idea, I mean, I have been perhaps one of the loudest critics of these proposals, which have at various times been supported by Senators Graham, Cruz, and Lieberman, I think most prominently. So I'm curious, what's the main argument for why not to do this? Because the way they were written, the, the statutes allow, the proposals allowed expatriation upon the Secretary of State's administrative determination mm. that the citizen had provided material support to a designated FTO. Well, and of course, the material support, as we're going to talk about in a moment, and DFTOs, that whole framework, there's a wide swath of stuff. It's a broad spectrum from highly problematic to totally, still, well, well, no, I wouldn't say yeah. totally, but still problematic, but much less so. But, right? more, but also, I have a real problem with making expatriation dependent upon an administrative determination by the Secretary of State. If right. you're going to do it, make it like the treason provision upon conviction by a court of record for the underlying well, offense. Well, but, but why? I mean, we have these other provisions we read a moment ago, such as, uh, at least to play devil's advocate here, yeah. uh, you know, if you if you swear an oath or affirmation of allegiance to a foreign state, and that's not based on a court determination. No, no, I know. But that, but, but presumably, no, that's not. But presumably there, it's because you've taken some affirmative voluntary act. Now, now I understand that in the constant material support, the argument is that the affirmative voluntary act is you know, the material support, right. that to me is not the same thing as taking, as, you know, saying I pledge allegiance to Germany is not the same thing as writing a check that you send to a designated FTO. Right, that's right. No, I think the real hard case is the one she actually presents. Yep. And I do think, I will predict for you that her case will become the poster child for uh, adopting some form of terrorist organization. Uh, Expatriation you know, language? Exactly, Except, where, where, yeah. where you literally say, I don't want to be an American anymore. I want to join this other Listen, or I, I, I understand that. I just think that the time to do that was the last two years. Like I think I think well, I'm not saying be, it could be applied yeah. retrospectively. No, 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 no. But I just mean politically. Like I don't think I think there are civil libertarians, especially in the House, who are going to have real problems with that just because of the as we're going to talk about the breadth of the material support laws. Yep. Um, and that if the if you know I, I'm. In, it, as is true, Bobby, in many other respects, I'm surprised that the Republicans did not take advantage of controlling both houses in the presidency to push through more of these proposals during the first two years of the Trump you know, administration. It's, it's, uh, I think it's true for both parties when, they're, when things are riding high. They're such, they're, the, the lens of short-termism is so strong. They all always do seem to think that there will always be a tomorrow, can deal with that down the road, and then someone else is in power. I mean, you know, Guantanamo, right? We, you know, so much of Guantanamo today is a reflection of the Obama administration not realizing how short its window of opportunity was to take meaningful steps on it. But No, it's interesting. So I don't think I agree with that. I we'll talk don't. about it more. I, okay. think that, I think that they actually had... First, there was a plurality of views within that administration, and more than many parts of it, and ultimately, I think the parts that mattered most didn't didn't actually want to take steps beyond what they. No, took. no, I understand. But do you think? But do you think that the Obama administration? carried out the first two years of Guantanamo policy with the understanding that Congress was going to legislate transfer restrictions that would make it all but impossible to do much of what they wanted in the last six years? You know, I think the predictability of what went down with the KSM initiative to move KSM to trial in New York and the way that blew up uh, and became politically, they perceived politically untenable. Um, obviously, they didn't see that coming, or I'm sure they saw some version of it coming, but didn't understand how bad they were going to lose on it. Yeah, sure. Maybe. All right. Anyway, so so on Musan, so I think you and I both agree that the current law, whether it should be amended or not, would not allow for her expatriation. No, it's clearly it clearly does not. And so then the question is just so what or is rather, going? It does not until they've prosecuted her for, for the right kind of crime. And so then the question becomes: So what is going on here? And so you know, I think your instinct and mine. Well, I don't want to speak for you. My instinct um, is that 
this whole she's not really a citizen thing um, is an effort to sort of like seize on to a plausible argument to avoid the messiness of whether if she is a citizen, she has a right to return. Um, right. That there's the, the Supreme Court has referred in passing to a so-called to a, quote, absolute right to return, unquote, but has never expressly recognized that on the part of citizens. And I don't think the government really wants to litigate that here. Well, it's interesting. It seems to me that if if they had all the same facts before yeah. them and the legal analysis we've got, it does seem like they've staked out a, very visibly staked out a politically advantageous for them position that ultimately probably can't be sustained in court. And that's that's fine because that moment that comes down the road where right. they lose in court is just another occasion to say like, well, look, we we fought the good fight with those <laughs> the, damn judges. The Ninth you know, Circuit screwed us the again. The Ninth Circuit's got us again. And yeah, that, <laughs> that's an old story. I remember when I was a clerk in New York City um, working in the district court and every now and then there'd be a, a 5 p.m. Friday TRO that would come in the door where the, this one Giuliani was mayor, and the Giuliani administration uh, parade permitting office would just deny permits <laughs> to certain groups. And uh, and it would be circumstances where the First Amendment analysis was pretty easy. The groups were going to win. But it was better all around from the from his honor, the mayor's office perspective. To have to, the like, courts yeah, say Yeah, say it. no. Yep. Have the courts <laughs> force this on him. And then the mayor can say, like, look, you know, not once but twice I fought the good fight. It extends the political but then, moment but then, a little but bit. But then why dig in on her not being a citizen at all as opposed to who cares if she's a citizen right. we're not letting her back? Right. Well, so I think that it must be the case. Look, I don't claim to have real insight or direct insight <laughs> to the underlying facts in the case. It's very possible that from the information that was put in front of Pompeo. Never, I don't know what was you know, fully available within the State Department, but the information put in front of him may well have made him think, hey, this was months after he stopped being a diplomat. He was just a guy trying to stay in America at that point, and, and that shouldn't be enough, and I'm going to hang my hat on that. And, yeah. and, and as I said earlier, he may well win that. Yeah, but there's got to be a process. There's got to be a process. This is, right. I mean, the, you know, one is not yeah. made, rendered a non-citizen yeah. by the diktat now, is of it, the Secretary of State. Now, is it possible? Of course, you'd think they would have come out and said so if they'd run some sort of ex parte process, right. which is the only process they could run with somebody who's left the country and said, burn my passport and kill Americans. So I don't blame them if they ran that process without but her. But they haven't. there's been no suggestion from either Pompeo himself or from the State Department spokesperson that there's been any process at all. Right. And so is it possible that the increasingly thinly resourced and staffed State Department <laughs> simply uh, didn't function in the way that protected Maybe. their boss to, to make sure he knew before he said this but that we're they had to, to have but, this process. But we're back to a common theme in this administration, right, which is sort of knee-jerk reactions to things without running without running the traps. And, um, and I suspect the, the ultimate answer is like, look, there, there's a lot of advantage to taking this position. If it turns out this isn't legally quite right and the courts make them do otherwise, they'll view that as as win-win. That's a feature to them, not so, a bad So Muthana's parents have filed suit against Pompeo mm-hmm. in the D.C. District Court um, I think the case was assigned to Judge Bates, um, and you know their claim is she's a citizen, um, and that as a citizen she has a right to return. Yeah. So we're going to um, find out. Yes. There, there will be. I'll be really interested to read the answer yep. that it gets filed. All right, um, you want to pivot from that to uh, this new FTO idea? Yeah. So we mentioned we mentioned Congressman Roy earlier. So Congressman Mark Green and Chip Roy have uh, teamed up to send a letter to the State Department to Pompeo asking that the State Department exercise its authority to designate FTOs, that's foreign terrorist organizations, as a legal term of art in U.S. uh, law, to designate as FTOs uh, at least some of the the narcotics cartels. um, And I don't think the letter actually specified the particular ones, but just in general, the cartels, they said, should be designated. So, Stephen, I thought it'd be good to sort of lay out some of the rules on this. It's it's not really a legally tricky thing, I think. I think it's actually, I think legally that is within the power of the Secretary of State to do. It's, it's a policy debate, and we can talk about the terms of that a bit. The way it works is this. 
um, 8 U.S. Code 1189. Um, it provides the Secretary of State with authority to designate foreign terrorist organizations. This has been around for a fair bit of time now. It's the predicate for a series of things that then happen to people that are interacting with designated foreign terrorist organizations. For our purposes, it has big implications for immigration in terms of removals and admissions. Um, Anybody who is a member of these organizations or, and this is critical, I believe, Steve, you'll correct me if I'm wrong about this, if you've provided or you're, you're said to have provided material support or resources to these designated organizations, you're not admitted. And if we figure it out, then you get removed. Uh, and then, of course, there is the direct prosecution of people for providing material support or resources. Now, we don't lack for charges for people involved uh, with cartels, but this is, a, this is both an additional set of particularly weighty and broadly framed charges We've talked about this on the show before, but under 18 U.S. Code 2339B, the 1996 material support statute, the mens rea required, first of all, what counts as material support or resources? Well, anything really that services or services or interactions of any value or, or, or utility, including providing yourself as personnel subject to the direction of the group. All that counts as long as the mens rea is satisfied. And the mens rea is you need to know that that is that the organization to which you're rendering this aid or providing the service is, in fact, a designate, designated group or a group that engages in conduct of the kind that warrants designation. And I'm only barely paraphrasing. So it's pretty sweeping. The key is there. You might be coerced. You might be under duress. But if you provide support, if you act as a drug mule under duress, if you give uh, food, if you do any services under duress, it doesn't matter. If you knew what you were doing, then strictly speaking, you know, discretion ought to suggest you shouldn't be prosecuted. But we know from the the, the true terrorism context with DFTOs that people I like have, what said, the true terrorism. Yeah, well. I'm coming back to that. Well, true terrorism, like organizations that are first and foremost categorized in the, in the average person's mind is, yeah, I think of that as a terrorist organization. Um, we know that the immigration uh, authorities have used the, the, men's, the weak mens rea to its fullest, including in cases where people said, look, I was coerced into providing the FARC, the aid I was, mm-hmm. I was said to have provided them. I had no choice, they, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that didn't matter. The, the rules were still enforced. And this used to be a bit of controversy. You don't hear about it much now. But maybe you would um, if we followed through and designated these terrorist organizations, I'm sorry, these drug cartels to count as FTOs. So can they do it? Well, 1189 requires that the would-be designee be a foreign organization, that it engage in terrorist activity or terrorism or did so in the past and still have the capability and intent to do so, uh, and those are both defined phrases, and that that activity or terrorism, quote, threatens the security of United States nationals or the national security of the United States. Um, So the only tricky part here is, you know, with any organization that's foreign and is harmful to the United States in some serious way, is it of a kind that counts for the statutory definitions of terrorist activity or terrorism? So terrorist activity defined it. Eight U.S. Code. Buckle up for this. 1182 sub A sub 3 sub B sub three little Roman eyes. Romanettes. Romanettes. Is that what it is? Romanettes. You're right. You're right. So under, under that heading, what you find there is a terrorist activity is an activity which is unlawful under the laws or the place where it's committed. So check. And which involves any of the following. Uh, first, hijacking or sabotage of a conveyance, uh, sometimes, I'm sure. Uh, two, seizing or detaining or threatening to kill, injure, or continue to detain a person in order to compel a third person, including a government organization, but not limited to that. 
to do or abstain from doing anything as an explicit or implicit condition for release, release of the individual. Okay, check that. That that will count. Uh, third, violent attacks on internationally protected persons, you know, like diplomats. Fourth, assassination. Check. Five, uh, using, well, various exciting things like bio and chemical and nuclear weapons, but also just plain explosives or firearms other than for mere personal monetary gain. Now, I don't think you need to satisfy that particular uh, uh, factor because you've got the assassination and the, and the kidnapping prongs, but you probably could get at least some of the cartels for being in this for more than just personal financial gain because there's displacement of territory, there's prevention of uh, government authorities from even exercising rudimentary law enforcement functions. There's, there's a lot more to it. In short, I think that the law would allow this. I think if Pompeo wants to designate cartels, the law allows him to do it. And so the question becomes, should he do so? Um, there are a lot of organizations out there in the world that would fit this bill. We don't designate them all. And, and even in the kind of the core terrorism scenarios where you don't have the complications of it being a money-making enterprise as you do with the drug cartels, you see sort of delays sometimes before some groups that seem like they're natural candidates before they ever get designated. Sometimes that's because the process is a slow process. Sometimes it's because it's, it's, a, it's a policy instrument for the State Department to wield. And sometimes it's not in the overall interest of U.S. foreign policy to take a step that, depending on the larger context, may really royal diplomatic relations with other key partners. Okay, I agree with all of that. Um, I would go about seven steps further, um, which I think was a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> well, just take at least a few of those steps. So, um, number one, um, that the statute, I don't dispute that some of the more nefarious international drug trafficking organizations in the world commit acts of terrorism. I mean, I think that's a no-brainer. I don't think that's why the statute exists, right? I don't think that's why 1189 exists. I don't think that's why we have FTO designation authority. I don't think that's why Congress in 1996 Thought, I don't think that's what Congress 96 thought it was doing when it made it a crime to provide material support to a designated FTO. Um, number two, I have real concerns about blurring the line between what you and I would agree is true, right, your word, not mine, transnational terrorism, um, and terror, acts of terrorism committed by, you know, organized crime groups, right, or drug traffickers or other sort of deeply nefarious groups who exist for purposes other than terrorism, right? For whom terrorism is not just, a, well, for whom, groups for whom terrorism is a means, but it's not the end. Isn't it? Okay, let, me, let me pause there. So I, think it's I have more really steps great, to go. I know you do. We'll come back to them. But real quick, isn't from all, there, yes, there are probably, we can come up with some truly nihilistic examples, I'm sure. But for the most part, the t terrorism's a tactic. If, if, we're, if by terrorism we're meaning the, the list of things, you know, these various forms of violence I just described, um, isn't it always a means to an end? I mean, how, can we really say categorically that a, a drug trafficking organization that engages in extensive terror tactics to terrorize and intimidate right. civilian populations and including yeah. to impact government policy is really distinguishable from one that wants to run the government itself or wants to impose its theological vision or wants to affect some other state's foreign policy? I'm not so sure I actually can, can buy into that. All right, that. so is the Russian mob a terrorist organization? Uh, that's a good question. So I, I need to know a lot more about what but, we're presuming is but my, true. But my point is, I mean, I don't, I don't know exactly. I mean, you know, live on this podcast, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to flesh out the definition, but there's just something that grabs me as being qualitatively different about what the, what the harms are that come from a group like al-Qaeda versus, on the other hand, a group like, I don't know, FARC. 
um, right? That or Farc's maybe a bad example. Well, I think I think Farc's a pretty good case for a terrorist organization. No, I, I, okay, that's why I said Farc's a bad yeah, example. But yeah. like some kind of just international drug conglomerate. Well, like the the Russian mob's a good example to tease it out, right? So we don't have to pick a particular one. Let's say a hypothetical organized crime family of some or, or organization of some kind that is not actually. It's certainly seeking to intimidate witnesses sure. to terrorize some people sure. at a local level for it's political seen, purposes. Yeah, for, well, no, to avoid being prosecuted, well, right? Right. But they're not actually trying. Well, this is where it gets interesting, right? If we stipulate they're not trying to actually displace the government in a certain area, right? They're not actually trying to control territory. What makes the cartels in Mexico different, at least at sometimes in places, is the actual displacement of the government, I would argue. And, okay. and it's it's true that they're trying to get rich on this as yeah. opposed to in, in you know realizing some 7th century vis- vision of, of theological purity. But they're nonetheless actually trying to destroy or displace government authority beyond just trying to avoid, uh, you know, prosecution. Okay, that's fine. But I still, th- I mean, then then define the term in a way that only encompasses those groups and not all international drug organizations, right? I mean, I think right. I, I have concerns that this to me is given the breadth of what material support is. I have concerns about sort of expanding the category in a way that's going to lose the connection to acts of international terrorism as such. Sure, and this this highlights something that's been a, almost a theme of our. Show show the the decline of trust in the executive branch during the current administration to uh, exercise wisely the types of judgment calls that uh, the difficulties of drafting precision into mm-hmm. language leads us normally to say, look, let's just let's put the authority in the sex state's hand right. and trust that the sex state is going to balance the interest in a way that will be reasonable. Um, I, you know, I, I think probably I have more faith in Secretary Pompeo than you do. Um, I, 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 I listened to the last, so I'll take that as a yes. Um, and, you know, we'll see what happens here. But I, I wouldn't consider it a category mistake depending on how broadly they framed it. But if they came out and said, like, hey, you know, Los Zetas have crossed the line or La Familia Michoacan back in its day maybe had crossed this line. Um, there are certain organizations in some parts of Mexico that I think are pretty fair game for this. Okay, so let me get to I'm the, not saying it's a good thing from an overall diplomacy wait, can I, perspective. Can I get to step three? There's four more steps. I forgot. Five well, more. I actually, I think I'm going to stop at step three because okay. I think, I, think I'm, I might get redundant after that. Okay. Um, now, there, I got t- two more steps. Step three step four. Um, step three. Um, three years after Congress created, made it a crime to provide material support to a designated FTO, Congress much more specifically spoke to the problem of international drug organizations when it passed the so-called Kingpin Act, the Foreign Narcotics Kingpin Designation Act, or the FNKDA, um, which, I don't know, seems like it's a pop group's acronym. Um, Funky Day? It's an initialism. I like it, the Funky Day. But it's an an initialism, not an acronym. Well, I guess if it's Funky Day, it's an acronym. All right, so um, the Kingpin Act, um, I think, is deeply under underknown and underappreciated um, and perhaps not necessarily anticipated by the two congressmen who wrote this letter is a remarkably broad source of power, mostly but not exclusively to the Treasury Department, um, to go after international drug organizations and to go after um, so-called specially designated uh, persons, SDPs. Mm-hmm. Sure, um, like El Chapo. And has a bunch of serious criminal penalties built in for those who, are, you know, that is not built, built on the material support model, but is built on sort of more specific transactional relationship model. Right. Um, and it seems to me that before we take the dramatic policy step of expanding the FTO list to include drug organizations that aren't themselves, like, you know, uh, whether it's a category error or not, just before taking that step, I would like to be 
told why the more specific statute that Congress passed to deal with the more specific problem of international drug organizations is inadequate, right? That what is it about the Kingpin Act that isn't providing the government with the authority that it would have on the material support statute? Um, and is, you know, are, in other words, why expand the material support statute until you're convinced that the more specific authority that Congress passed after the material support statute to deal with this specific problem is inadequate? Do we know whether the immigration provisions, which definitely pick up material support yeah. to FTOs, I would assume that they've uh, added in the, king, the the funky day, if, if I may. That, that sounds too uh, kind of too blithe. Too blithe about a serious topic. The uh, the kingpin statute related I would sanctions. Assume so. I would assume so too. Look, it's a fair question, but I think the answer to that would be that's great. These are all, this is terrible, and we have multiple. There's there are many more statutes besides that are all no, implicatable, no, 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 no. and they uh, want the sim- let, me, let me finish the thought. Uh, there's a whole range of statutes well beyond material support and the Kingpin statute that also are implicated by these guys. Witness the recent con- successful conviction of El Chapo on, I suspect, a variety of other uh, charges, regular violent crime and RICO-type charges. Um, and it's it's commonplace in, in federal criminal law for there to be multiple regimes that could all be brought to bear. And I think Green and Roy are saying that, look, it, w- it would also be helpful to acknowledge that there's an element of terrorism in the sense of intimidating civilian populations that's uniquely grave in this case. And we ought to call a spade a spade. Now, they may or may not be right that it's worth it on the whole to do that. It might open up too many cans of worms. It might be too bad for U.S.-Mexico diplomatic relations. Host of reasons why it might not ultimately be a good idea. And the Secretary of State may well you know, make a non-judgment reflecting that. Um, but I don't think the existence of additional regimes, though certainly, as you say, you know, very specifically applicable, uh, preclude the possibility that if these organizations are not just kingpin-based trafficking organizations, but also uh, tipping over into the realm of terrorism beyond a certain point, I think it'd still be fair game to, to acknowledge that. I would at least like to hear that, though. Like, yeah. I mean, like before, you know, before wildly expanding the scope of the immigration and criminal prosecution authorities under 1189, I would like to at least have some sense of what it is about the Kingpin Act, which Congress passed after the material support statute, um, that has been a- inadequate, right? That that I don't have the sense from the letter that, that these two congressmen yeah. sent to Pompeo that this is basically, we have looked at other authorities and found them inadequate, as opposed to we want the political symbolism of putting these groups on the list. So it's symbolism, yes. And I'm not questioning that there'd be some political symbolism involved in it, no doubt. Um, we live in the real world, we know that. But that doesn't mean there's no policy symbolism. That is, the fact that it may be mostly symbolic doesn't mean it's purely political. So, all right. And then finally, the, the fourth thing I'm going to say is the material support statute, I think, by not a large margin, survived a constitutional challenge in the Supreme Court in 2010 in Holder versus Humanitarian Law Project. Um, if you go back and read Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion, the number of times where the First Amendment analysis is driven by the sort of compelling need on the government's part to deter, to prevent and deter international acts of terrorism, you know, I think is hard to miss. Um, it's not clear to me that if the material support statute were expanded in a way to cover incredibly serious, but, you know, less sort of immediate, less Al-Qaeda-ish, right, more sort of drug and mob-ish criminal transactions that the court would be quite so um, 
sanguine about the First Amendment objections to, to, to the extent to which the material support statute imposes limits on speech as well as conduct. So two things on that. One is that the, the FTO list is, is pretty long at this point, and I would argue that there are some Mexican cartels that are a better fit under it than probably some of the more marginal groups in terms of their impact on the United States yep. that are already on the list. So I don't think it actually would mark that kind of departure. And secondly, I think that the 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 degree to which Holder versus Humanitarian Law Project was close was very much a function of the the hypothetical fact pattern that was presented there, which is the idea of the Justice Department potentially using the statute to prosecute an organization that was basically a human rights organization trying to provide uh, education to groups like the PKK in terms of how they might try to engage in nonviolent methods of pursuing their agenda. So I, I just think that it wasn't I wouldn't want I wouldn't describe it as the court was kind of teetering on the brink of of uh, finding unconstitutional the larger framework. It would only be in a pretty narrow set of cases that it don't think would be particularly implicated by this particular extension I'm not of the sure FTO that, I, I guess I, I'm not sure that's true. And so and so just all of these strike me as reasons why, you know, the, I mean, yes, the FTO list has groups on it who, in my view, shouldn't be there. But to me, the answer is, you know, not to expand it to include more groups who fit. Like, the answer should not be find all groups that are more compelling than the lowest denominator on the current FTO list, right? I mean, I, that's not what you're saying. Right. But just, I, you know... <laughs> Whether, that it's legally available as an option does not necessarily mean that it's wise. And here are sort of a bunch of reasons why I'm not sure it's wise. Yeah. Truth is, probably neither of us are in a great position. As you say, we don't know the details of exactly what is it that the DEA would say or the, or that the, the, the uh, Customs and Border Protection would say, here's here's the tool that we're missing that, that this could solve. But there may well be a good answer to that, that it actually makes sense. If they ever proceed with this, there ought to be hearings so we yes. can learn more about it. And we there can agree on that. Um, all right. So, uh, what about the, going back to the DC Circuit, uh, the the Ali decision, which was which was a decision not to have on banc review, yes. of the panel determination, but there was a concurrence, not, not initial on banc. So, right. right, right. The, so, oh, right. Was, it was they were trying to skip ahead. They were trying to skip ahead. Right. So, so, everybody's trying to skip the line this year. We've become so impatient. <sighs> all right. I mean, you know, once it happens once. So we have a two-judge concurrence in the decision not to allow preemptive on banc review. Um, and it was there to make a point, yes. a constitutional point. Tell me about it. So we've talked before about the sort of awkward uncertainty hanging over the D.C. Circuit's Guantanamo jurisprudence with regard to which constitutional provisions do and do not apply to the Guantanamo detainees, um, and how in some cases the court has suggested that the court, by the, which I mean the D.C. Circuit, has suggested that the original panel opinion in Kiemba one, the first Uyghur case right. from 2009, is when the Uyghurs had been cleared for release under the. But had nowhere to go. Right, but had nowhere to go because couldn't go to China. Um, So basically, the short version is some panels of the D.C. Circuit and the government have acted as if Kiemba 1 holds and continues to hold that the Due Process Clause categorically doesn't protect the Guantanamo detainees. Some panels of the D.C. Circuit have assumed without deciding that it does, without, you know, getting into anything messy. So judges Tatel and Pollard write this, you know, I think fascinating opinion concurring with the denial of initial hearing on Bonk. Basically, just to say, here is our explanation, and here is our parsing of our doctrine that demonstrates that, in fact, there is no current holding of the D.C. Circuit to the effect that the Due Process Clause does not apply at Guantanamo. Not saying we therefore think it does, but just that it is an issue that any three-judge panel is you know, is and should be able to decide in the first instance in the next appropriate case. So, so like the, the Rockies say... It is known. It is these known. guys are saying it is not known. But it's interesting. So as I read it, 
uh, as I read it, they were offering two reasons, yep. two main reasons why it's not actually decided for the DC Circuit mm-hmm. at this point by Kiamba One. Reason one, one of them I found more persuasive than the other. Reason one was uh, that Kiamba One, in, in their telling, just didn't come to grips with the then on the books Boumediene ruling, which yep. maybe uh, they came to grips with it, just not necessarily the way that these judges perhaps thought they should have. Maybe, But maybe not at all, but I'm not sure that changes the fact that if it otherwise were an on-point determination post-Boumediene, I don't think that you know a, a post-hoc critique of its failure to account for Boumediene necessarily reopens it. But... Neither here nor there, because I actually find their their second point seems a, a pretty good one. They say, look, uh, Kimba one, there, there's more than one due process clause concern. As anybody like us who teaches this stuff knows, and everyone else who studies this knows, there's procedural due process and substantive due process, and that's we could have a whole podcast hmm. about that, um, and maybe one day we will. But for now, it's enough to say that. Uh, the judges are pointing out that Kiamba One was a substantive due process ruling, sort of about the the you know the ultimate outer boundaries, things the government simply can't do full stop, regardless of how many procedural safeguards there were, and that the question now presented is, well, what about procedural due process? That is the the separate species of Fourteenth or Fifth Amendment, I guess Fifth Amendment in this case, uh, due process protections, where there's a liberty interest, and the question is, what's the right mix of procedural safeguards that the Constitution requires before it's deprived, and and we should add that the underlying question here, as I understand it, is one about, hey, is, is it not the case that at a certain point of passage of time uh, under military detention at Guantanamo, doesn't procedural due process uh, balancing begin to alter what it is the government must yeah. show beyond what it used to have to show years right. earlier? Which, you know, we probably have differing views on that, but it's a fair question to ask and certainly a plausible constitutional question. And the court is saying, um, Kiemba won at most— is is telling us that the D.C. Circuit, at least for the time being, has decided that substantive due process rights don't extend to Gitmo detainees as non-citizens outside the formal United States. Um, but it didn't it didn't say the same thing was true necessarily for procedural due process. Now, for my part, I actually don't find that distinction terribly convincing. That is, if it's really true that substantive due process doesn't apply, I have a hard time seeing why procedural will be different. But it's a distinction. And anyways, I, I don't love the idea that somehow that the circuit itself is is you know unable to revisit this question so many years later. I think that's right. I also, I mean, it's worth stressing that Kiemba One was vacated by the Supreme Court, um, but wasn't it reinstated in so, relevant part? Well, in, in fact, so the so on remand, right? I mean, yeah. Kiemba Three, um, the the court in a in a sort of it's Kiemba Three is a strange read because it's basically like really hard to decipher what's going on if you haven't like you know if you're not intimately familiar with the prior decisions. Yeah. And I guess one could read Kiamba 3 as saying, you know, yeah, Supreme Court, we heard you, but we're reinstating our prior opinion. Um, but one could also read Kiamba 3 as saying, you know, not, as not saying that exp- with sufficient specificity right. um, to settle the matter beyond peradventure, especially since the Supreme Court subsequently denies cert from Kiamba 3, but only with this interesting, I think, four-justice concurrence um, about how the, you know, the issue had changed in a way that no longer, right? Like, you know, there's enough looming yeah. stuff that I think it's not implausible for Tato and Pillard to say this. And I think it's not a coincidence that Judge Pillard joined this opinion because she is on a panel, a three-judge panel, that heard her argument on January 15th in the Kasim case, which also has this sort of due process length of hostilities challenge. Um, I don't think the panel in Kasim is about to say, yes, the length of detention violates the due process clause. Um, 
I do think the panel might be about to say the due process clause applies. Right. And so this leads to a further point is, which is don't people shouldn't overread the possibility that the court might right. say that to say that the procedural due process protections of the Fifth Amendment apply to these people doesn't mean therefore they can't be held as they're currently be held being held or under some other process. It simply means that there's an analysis to be done. Mm-hmm. And as as we know from many contexts, not least of which the uh, the legal analysis surrounding the use of lethal force against U.S. citizen Anwar al-Awlaki, um, the question is, in the context, what processes do? Yep. So that doesn't mean this these detainees are going to win. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised at all, Steve, as you say, if it turns out this is a stalking horse or a foreshadowing of a, a clear statement that whatever was true about Kiamba One is either no longer true, distinguishable, or has otherwise come unwound, and they're going to take this position on procedural due process. Yeah, I mean, and I just think I will not be surprised if the opinion of Kasim says we now hold that the due process clause does in fact apply to detainees at Guantanamo, citing this opinion. Right, and, and then we'll see en banc review, I bet. Maybe. I mean, I don't know if there are enough votes to force on. I mean, you know, especially if the result in Kasim or, or, is... Or cert grant, right? Because this this will be an interesting bellwether for, for the, the current and new... That's right. Although I will court. just say that one of the more important opinions that that assumed Kiemba won, uh, that assumed the due process clause applied without deciding, was written by Judge Kavanaugh. So it's not yeah. clear to me. Like, again, the question, you know, there are two separate questions here. Does the due process clause apply at all? And if so, what does it actually right. require? Right. They, in which it goes back to the point, people don't need to freak out about this. No. But I bet some will. Well, I mean, you know, it's 2019. We freak out about everything. That's true. Well, speaking of, that's a nice segue to our final case to mention, moving back to Houston. Uh, yeah, so I, yeah, let, let's give over Al Tamimi. We'll, we'll, oh, we'll I say, forgot about No, Al-Tamimi. no, no. Let's save it for a minute. We're, we're already at like 59 minutes. So let's, oh, you're right. we gotta let's give, do the draft. Do to the it's getting drafty in here. Okay, so Judge Gray Miller, who I know pretty well because I went to college with his son, and then I worked at Fulbright and Jaworski, what's now Norton Rose in Houston, when he was a partner there. He was He's a big figure in Houston admiralty law. Really great guy. Super neat family. Um, There's has, admiralty law. We don't talk about that enough. No, we should talk about it more. Uh, that's what our colleague Michael Sterley's for. Um, National Coalition for Men versus Selective Service System. Uh, NCFM is is an, uh, a, I think, self-described men's rights group that's litigated the uh, the fact that only men are subject to selective service registration for the in, in the event of the draft being revived. They've litigated this a bunch. The case has had some ups and downs. They finally got shunted over to Houston because I think that's where one of the named plaintiffs, uh, one of the particular individuals involved is. In any event, uh, the case had already survived a motion to dismiss with, uh, with some standing challenges, both in general and as to organizational standing. And then Judge Miller on the 22nd dropped this opinion. They got a ton of attention, finding uh, basically finding it violates the equal protection principle that's read into the substantive aspect of the Fifth Amendment due process clause. Uh, it's gender discrimination. And this is in the face of Rostker, a uh, otherwise on point, but now somewhat dated Supreme Court opinion. And the, the whole linchpin of the analysis, Steve, as you said earlier in the, the run of the show, um, things has changed. In particular, the decision by the military to admit women to combat roles, at least to some degree. Right. So if you go back, I mean, so two things have changed, right? One is on the military side, which is at the time Roscoe was decided, there were a series of regulations in place that restricted the ability of women to hold combat roles, to perform combat functions, and Bobby, to, to do another of, a, a number of other frontline tasks in the military. All of those have been progressively relaxed in the 38 years since Roscoe was decided. The other thing, and I, I don't know if you feel this way, but you know, when I teach con law, 
to first years. I mean, I sort of, you know, I'm of the view that the Supreme Court's um, sexual discrimination, equal protection jurisprudence really shifts a bit between Rosker in 1981 and Mississippi University for Women versus Hogan in 1982 and the VMI case in oh, 1996. Oh, yeah, 97. Uh, six, six or seven? Yeah, yeah, mid-90s. Well, you know, high school. No, um, no question. Where, that, I'm sorry. Yeah, please, go ahead. No, where, where the court, you know, intermediate scrutiny, and Michael M. versus Superior Court is also in the early period, mm-hmm. where intermediate scrutiny in the 80s is actually pretty easy. It yeah. looks more like rational. Like, it's closer to the rational basis. And that by the time you get to VMI, it looks right. a lot more like strict scrutiny. Indeed, that's one of Justice Scalia's complaints in his dissent in VMI. Right, and there's some language in it that's that's almost, it, it's, it reads to me as if the Justice Ginsburg writes this opinion. Of course, it's it's it goes to a core interest of hers. Um, no doubt, if she'd had the votes, would have would have had strict scrutiny employed rather than doing things. I, oh, no. I don't. Oh, no. oh, we're gonna have to. No, I don't think Justice Ginsburg is. A, uh, so I mean, she argued Franciero. I don't necessarily think that she thinks strict scrutiny is right. I think she just thinks intermediate scrutiny should have. Well, teeth. should have teeth. Right, right. So okay, fair enough. I, I I retract what I said, but she certainly wants it to have real teeth. Yes. And there's a lot of language in there that that I think was a bit of an evolution in the rhetoric of how we describe the doctrinal elements of intermediate scrutiny, quite purposely to, to give courage to judges implementing that framework to have have it have more bite. And be more skeptical of the interest states are proffering, states or the federal government are proffering for sex-based right. classifications. And, and I think you see that. So Judge Miller's opinion has a lot of references. So he talks a lot about deference, another yep. recurring theme of our show, <laughs> and, and is going out of his way to say, look, you know, if this wasn't actually an interest of Congress when they passed this statute, if they didn't consider that element or this element, he's, he's knocking down potentially relevant interests left and right in a way that's, of course, you know, the opposite of what would happen if it was really anything closer to rational basis review. He's really holding, he's holding the legislators who created the, the statutes he's, he's examining to the actual arguments they really considered, which is, you know, it's on that spectrum of having more bite. And then he's looking at all and saying, and anyways, we've had this innovation in combat rules for women. So the underlying logic, the linchpin logic, that that uh, that cornerstone's been removed. Yep. So um, there were two sets of reactions to this ruling on Friday. First of all, let's just stress the ruling was um, the the ruling was only declaratory judgment, right? There's no immediate impact to this right. decision. No injunction. No only. injunction. There's absolutely zero question that the government will appeal this to the Fifth Circuit. Mm-hmm. Um, there were two reactions, both of which I found not quite convincing. Um, one was the sort of doctrinaire reaction that a district court has no business deciding on its own that the foundations of a prior Supreme Court decision have eroded to the point where, you know, a decision like Rosker that looks squarely on point could be sort of distinguished. Um, and I have to say, I, I disagree with that, at least in theory, right? That is to say, I think it is the job of a lower court to answer a question as best as they can based on what they think the Supreme Court, you know, based based on what they think the right answer is under the Constitution as the Supreme Court's interpreted it. And if the Supreme Court's original opinion relied on facts that are no longer true, and if the Supreme Court's subsequent jurisprudence has suggested that the burden on the government has increased, that it's perfectly legitimate for a district court to say, I have to decide this matter anew, um, or at least the prior decision may not be binding, even though it may be strongly persuasive. And my favorite example of this um, is, you know, the the Eighth Amendment case, Roper versus Simmons, mm-hmm. about the juvenile death penalty? Mm-hmm. So the Supreme Court in 2005 throws out the death penalty for individuals who are 16 or 17 at the time of their offense. Um, and they did so in the process overruling a 1989 decision called Stanford versus Kentucky. Um, the lower court, the Missouri Supreme Court in that case, had per- taken it upon itself 
to say that they did not believe Stanford was still good law and that the current Supreme Court would overrule it. Um, and the cert petition to the court said, you can't let a state Supreme Court do this to you. You can't let a state Supreme Court, you know, throw out one of your precedents like that. And, the, and so I would have thought that the Supreme Court was really pissed. They would have summarily reversed and said, whether you're right or not, it's up to us, not to you. Instead, the Supreme Court granted cert and affirmed. Yeah. Right. No, and it's, so it's like, it's a, as a general rule, I think it's, it's a good general principle that district courts in particular, that trial courts in particular, should not go trying to anticipate how a settled precedent has, has somehow been sufficiently eroded over time that it's no longer good law as a general rule. But there's going to be exceptions. And, and to me, this is, and to me, I mean, I, I see both a factual and a doctrinal predicate for this case being an exception. So that was one reaction. The second reaction, back to your and my congressman, Chip Roy, um, was this sort of, insane hyperventilation over the specter of women being subject to the draft, right? And the sort of the idea that, you know, they're going to draft my daughters over my dead body. Um, and I just have to say, like, I, I have multiple layers of problems with this reaction. The first of which is um, we don't currently have a draft. Um, the second of which is this is a member of Congress. The they in the, in the sentence, they're going to take our daughters over my dead body is you, buddy. Right. Um, and third, you know, let's have a conversation about whether we think there is. I mean, the, the notion that you can take my sons but not my daughters strikes me as smacking of the very gendered stereotypes that the court's modern intermediate scrutiny jurisprudence is designed to repudiate. Well, I think I think that the it's no surprise to me whatsoever that there would be a powerful and dramatic reaction in the public that's not getting into the legal nuances. And it's not accounting for the sorts of you know details you and I talk about here, but it's just talking about the sensitivities of intersecting uh, the fate of our children's our children with armed conflict and the possibility of a draft in the, in the future. Of course, that, that's you know, it's among the most sensitive areas you could ever expect to see. It's also no surprise to me that there would be um, um, policy and political lenses brought to bear on this ruling and people offering comments through that lens. Um, what's really interesting is there is this commission that's supposed to be at work right. on thinking about what does the change, Congress has called for this commission yep. to consider, does the change to the combat role and rules for gender, what does it mean for a variety of things, including, I think, uh, selective service? Yep. Um, this decision, I think it's not an accident that there's no injunctive element to this at Quite. this stage. Um, Reduces at, the temperature. At the, at the end of the day, this isn't going to get resolved by judges in the end. It's going to get resolved by Congress, or at least it should be. And as long as they've considered arguments for and against, I think you'll then find in some future wave of litigation, if there is one, there will be deference to how Congress resolves this. I, I think that's right. I'll just say, I mean, I do think, I think the odds are that the Fifth Circuit's going to reverse, because um, it's the Fifth Circuit. Um, but... That's a fascinating cert petition. I mean, you know, I, I think the, the Supreme Court could easily try to if – if the Fifth Circuit reverses, I think the Supreme Court probably ducks. But over – I mean, over I think what will likely be a pretty loud dissent from the denial of cert by Ginsburg and Sotomayor. I think that the Supreme Court's not going to want to touch this as long as it does seem realistic, as it does. The right. Congress is going to engage on but this. But, man, issue. I mean, if, if somehow you get the right Fifth Circuit panel and the Fifth Circuit affirms, I mean, this is, you know – Yeah, it could create some precedent that the court might then decide it really wants to engage on. Um, all, all of this is to say, I mean, I do think that there is – I mean, I every year when I teach sex discrimination, I talk about the draft. Um, yeah. and, and I think now you got <laughs> whatever you think about Rosker. I mean, I think Rosker is one of the few like, you know, still good law Supreme yeah. Court sex discrimination decisions from before the, the modern sort of re amplification yeah. of, of intermediate scrutiny. OK, so um, lots of lots of rich material. That was good stuff. Let's, and then there were the Oscars. And then there were the Oscars. OK, so frivolity time. Tune out if you don't want to hear bye. it. Bye bye. Um, so what do you think of the host, no host, sorry, not sorry approach? 
I, I thought, you know, they were hosting. The Amy Poehler, Tina Fey, and Maya Rudolph come out. That was just a very so, short so opening to tie this back To tie this back to our frivolity from, I think, last week, right? I mean, there are all these rule changes in baseball to try to speed up the game, right? And my reaction to them is, you know, Keep, don't lose don't don't lose sight of the prize here, right? The reason why you want to speed up the game is to keep viewers, right? Is to keep eyeballs on the set, uh-huh. right? Um, if getting rid of a host is designed to make the show snappier and more efficient, right? Um, you know, I guess it, did did it succeed? I mean, like like you know, were this year's Oscars more compelling because there was no host, or is the problem that we haven't had the right host? Well, do you think that's why they didn't have a host? I I was I well, thought also it the was, Kevin Hart controversy. Yeah, I thought it was just like the the aftermath. Look. Oscars more yeah. so than all the other award shows has had this. It's been politicized. Yeah. It's got this whole sort of this sort of microscopic examination that goes into whoever now gets picked right. as the host. Well, there, I mean, also, sometimes very well right. deserved, but there's there's this sense I have that a lot of people who are in the potential yeah. host business really don't want to have that role for the Oscars. I think that's right because like there's nowhere to go but down. Right. Right. Like right. I mean, there's just you know you can't. It's like you, there's no way to succeed. Right. right. The and, only it's a strange game, chess. The only winning move is not to play. Wait, I thought was, uh, I thought it was uh, tic tac toe. Global sorry. thermo. Yeah, tic tac toe. No, tic tac toe. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Chess. chess. Yeah, there is chess. definitely there is plenty of winning moves. Um, Usually, if you're playing me, there's lots of winning moves. <laughs> Ditto. So, so I think that uh, I think they had actually a really nice solution by saying, "Look, there's no host," but they prevailed on three incredibly funny people to get True. up there, say some very brief monologue, just enough to kind of scratch that itch. The show should begin with some ice breaking laughs. Listen, if you told me that you could get Maya Rudolph, Tina Fey, and Amy Poehler. Like, you know, I would just watch three hours of that. No, I know. It was great. And so I'm sure part of the deal was, look, y'all don't have to get back up there. Just come out once, say some funny stuff. And that was great. G- give an award and go. So, all right. I mean, like, in general, I like this show. Um, do you want to walk through the awards or do you have other just, broader just comments? Some, no, no. That's fine. Uh, just, I will say here, I had a, a, you know, a 13 and 11 record according Ooh. to my, my sheet here. So I was pretty proud of how I, I called it. I, I really rode Black Panther on this one. I, I, I got a lot of wins out of that. Um, I, say, I, I thought the speeches by the two, um, the two women, the two black women who won for the visual side of Black Panther, I thought was very yeah, cool. Yeah, no, that, that was cool. And that was, that was a no-brainer, I thought, the, the costume design element for Black Panther. Um, Although I, I'm still waiting for someone to explain to me the difference between sound mixing and sound editing. Okay, so I have views on this. I, I don't claim to expertise, <laughs> but look, sound mixing. Think about like watching um, a band playing on Saturday Night Live, and yeah. as often happens, it doesn't sound right, right? Yeah. Like the yeah. the bass is too loud, the singer's not loud enough. That's mixing. Editing is well. Let's have this. Let's now have that sound come in and be totally different. Waterfall. It's not levels, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, but so we give separate Oscars for that, but we give one Oscar. One Oscar. I mean, it's, just, it's like you know the things for which we give one Oscar versus yeah. the things for which we give separate Oscars. So okay, let's talk Best Picture. I have. I haven't. I have problems. Well, I haven't seen Green Book. Um, I I do think it's fascinating that there's been such blowback, and we talked a little bit about this earlier as we were walking to go get some coffee. Yeah, no, we actually hung out a bit today. We hung out a bit. Yeah, we never do that. Never. Um, this there's not having seen it. I don't have an opinion on whether it deserved it or not. But I am curious about how much of this criticism is a artistic is an artistic judgment, and how much of it is a, a political or ideological judgment about this, as some people are calling it. Yeah. The, this this movie is somehow what are they calling it? Like a reverse driving Miss Daisy, like a whitewashing of, or yeah. the, it's a white person's history yeah. of. Um, I gotta say, I, I have no problem with critique if it's a, if it's a uh, artistic judgment, right. but if it's simply saying that, well, you know, we don't we don't want this version of this story being told. Yet it was a great movie. I think that's that's less comfortable. I agree with that. I will just say though, I don't think Peter Farrelly did any favors when he got up there and said this. 
this movie wouldn't have been possible without Viggo Mortensen and didn't even mention Mr. Shirley, right, about whom the movie, you know, on whose story the movie is based. I mean, like, yeah, yeah. you know, I think part of this is there's an element to which the speeches are important um, in sometimes saving the movie or the nomination, right, from the critique. That's and so, an issue idea. So, they, for, they, so for example, yeah. like Rami Malek in his speech accepting, you know, best actor for his portrayal of Freddie Mercury in Bohemian Rhapsody didn't really talk about Freddie Mercury at all. Um, right, like I mean, I, just, I he think, talked about his, his. He talked about larger issues that right. Freddie Mercury. But but you know, but, but I think I think there is a. I think that there is a. I think the Oscars are overdone. But so long as they're overdone, and <laughs> so long right. as they play this outsized role in our pop culture world, I do think there's an obligation in the speeches, you know, to sort of be mindful of the gestalt of the award and of the gestalt of the movie that you're accepting. I mean, like, right, so there's all the concerns about, you know, what Peter Sing- Brian Singer, Peter Singer, whatever, Singer's role, right, in, in Bohemian Rhapsody. So, you know, I, 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 that's a, that, maybe, that may be an unfair burden, but I think the other problem I have, and this is sort of getting away from the politics for a second, I hate the voting system for Best Picture. So unlike any of the other awards, the Academy does this stupid, I mean, I don't, I don't have a problem in most cases with rank preference voting. I actually think usually it works out. In this context, I think it means invariably that you end up with like the least objectionable of the leading Best Picture, like, you know, cut out the sort of weakest of the Best yeah. Picture nominees. And you're gonna have, you know, I mean. It, you get the ones that don't have everyone putting them at the bottom because they don't think it belongs. Right, you have the movie that everyone ranks third. Right, as opposed to you know, oh, I felt really strongly about Roma. Why is that? Why is that inherently less legitimate as the winner than one that? Let, let's just simplify it. Like twenty-seven percent say half of them say right. this is number one. The other half say it shouldn't so even be there. The reason I, I my understanding is the reason why the Academy switched to this was when they expanded the number of movies that could win Best Picture. That you know, you when have you have plurality problem, you have a plurality problem. Whereas if you only have four or five, yeah. you know, well, but, so who would you have given it to? Who should if if you if it's not it's not Green Book. Who, Who's the obvious so winner? Because this is a pretty no, no. strong crop. I don't think there was an obvious winner, right? Which adds to it, right? which, which is yeah. why Green Book wins, right? Yeah. But I would have been—I would have not felt nearly the same sort of awkward feeling at the end of the show um, if Black Panther had won, um, if Black Klansman had won, if The Favorite had won, or if Roma had won. If any of those four movies had won, I would have walked away saying, "Okay, Academy." Good job this but year. But wait, but I, I still understand why, other than the ideological or political critiques of the film, I didn't, is, it, I, is it an artistic critique? I didn't like think it was that good. That okay, no, that, that's fair. That's fair. And I didn't think it was that good. And I, and I think that Best Picture is such a is such a bigger-than-life award for a movie. I mean, listen, I, I still have – I'm still scarred by the fact that, you know, Shawshank Redemption lost out to Forrest Frackin' Gump. Oh, come on. I mean, I love Shawshank. Which of those what? movies is better? They're both great. No, 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 I think, no. I think, I think you're letting your your personal preferences tr- uh, blind you to the subjectivity of this. It's so subjective. Well, of course, it's subjective. All right, um, I just want to say one more thing. Um, I think I only want to say one more thing. I mean, I was really so, notwithstanding how much I didn't love Green Book, Mahershala Ali for Best Supporting Actor. Mm-hmm. I have obviously no objection yeah, there. Yeah, it's easy. Um, I thought Regina King's speech. Um, uh, her acceptance speech for uh, If Beale Street Could Talk was fantastic, although I wish that movie had done better. Um, and I just want to say, um, I have always loved Olivia Coleman, And I was, you know, her speech was everything I love about her. Yes, and I was so excited. Um, and I don't know if you know this, Bobby. Oh, I know you know this because we talked about this. Um, she's going to be Queen Elizabeth on season oh, three of I The know. Crown. I can't wait. Uh, it'll, it'll come in right after someone else gets crowned, presumably, at the end of Game of Thrones. Um, or not, as the case may be. Yeah, right. 
Um, let's see, what else is there to say? I mean, most of this went pretty much as expected. You and I both were excited about the short film animated winner. Bow! Bow! So excited. I mean, I, I, I think we both saw it before a feature film, um, maybe an Alamo. Um, and I just remember, like, crying. Like, I watched Bow, and I don't know if it's, like, the, the parent, you know, emotions, oh, yeah, but it was just, yeah. like, that movie, like, I, I, I don't remember what movie. I, let me put it this way. I remember seeing Bow. I couldn't tell you for the life of me what feature film we had actually gone to see when we saw Bow. Yeah, it was it was uh, it was pretty wonderful. So well deserved there. Those a lot of those shorts are often some of the most fun things. Uh-huh. I appreciate the Draft House. I think actually has a, has a, a ability to go in there and watch a bunch of them right now. Um, and I also loved um, Reka Z- uh, Zatabshi. I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but the the best documentary short subject for period end of sentence. Uh, a movie about menstruation just won an Oscar. Like I love that. That's wild. Um, what else to say about this? I think that covers. I mean, there's obvious things about you know shallow and whatnot. I don't even think shallow is the best song from A Star Is Born. I mean, I realize that. Which do you prefer? Uh, three or four of them. I mean, like uh, shallow. Someone they sat down. They were like, okay, let's write the song that's going to win the Oscar for uh, best song. Uh, I think I, shallow is a, an amazing bit of songwriting. And Lucas Nelson. Well, let me tell you. I can't remember if I said this on the show. I saw this is Willie Nelson's son wrote this. Yeah. Lucas Nelson. He's awesome in his own right. Uh, he performed this right around New Year's Eve here in Austin uh, with his band, and it was it was. I mean, that song's pretty special. Yeah, no, I know, but I think there are better songs on the album. Um, I'll just, but I will just say that Lady Gaga. I mean, if she keeps working and if she just like tr- you know keeps her head down and you know tries really hard, one day she really might turn out to be something. <laughs> you think you think she's got potential? I think she has potential. Good luck, that, kid. That, that Lady Gaga. <laughs> all right. On that note, I guess we've covered all the bases. Uh, that's a lot. Yeah, that was good. Um, and maybe by next week we can talk about True Detective. I'm hoping. We'll be close. We'll be closer. Well, what's going to happen first? Uh, the NCAA tournament or true detect- Or you're going to be able to talk about true detective? A true detective, I all think, right. yeah. Well, all right. He is at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. We don't really have a good title for this episode. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Right. Shallow. Stay safe. Shallow. <laughs> Stay safe out there. Adios.